You may be seated. Our first scripture reading this morning is from the second chapter of Isaiah, found on page 594 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bible. The word that Isaiah, son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. From the Gospel according to Matthew, the 24th chapter, beginning with the 36th verse. But about the day and hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the fathers. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken. The other one will be left. Two will be grinding meal together. One will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. In this season of waiting, calm our hearts. Remove the anxiety that comes with the unknown and replace it with the peace that knows you abide with us. Even in Christ our Lord. Amen. The author Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa Feldman Barrett. I want to give that to you so you can Google her when you get home or on your phone now, but please don't do that. Uh, her book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, psychologist Barrett offers a revolutionary theory of what is called constructed emotion. She says that our brains spontaneously predict our emotions based on context and pattern recognition. We get the sensory experience from our brains and then our brains quickly rifle through other parallel experiences and invite us to respond based on 
what we've experienced in the past. She says that emotions are not hardwired. They're not something that are done to us, but they are something that is created by us. When it comes to emotive response, we're the architects of our emotions, not the victims. Sensory experience, your brain knows. So when something occurs, Barrett suggests, rapid fire, all parallel experiences are compared to the sensation of the moment And our response then is based on how the brain perceives the most efficient and most effective response to the current situation based on metaphors drawn from previous experiences. Let me give you an example. You're walking with a toddler to the park, and he stumbles and falls. He bumps his knee, and there's that momentary silence, and we almost spontaneously discern whether the bump was catastrophic or trivial, right? The toddler takes a little longer to interpret the pain and looks around and calculates the most effective and the most efficient response. This could result in just a sudden giggle, I tripped, and getting up and running onto the park. Or it could turn into deep howls with seemingly time-lapsed tears. Our tendency is to look at the child and say, look, uh, they're looking around to see if anybody's paying attention, and if they are, they're going to cry. Don't make a big deal over it. How that response occurs sets up a dynamic for the next time that the toddler falls. If the toddler's response is tears, but our interpretation is no big deal, we scoop them up and try and convince them that they're okay, right? They may not be okay, but we've already discerned with our mental capacity of recognition that it does not warrant howls and screams because we are, after all, going to the park. If the child gets up and just keeps running to the park, we're like, that moment's over with, let's go find the slides. We, on the way, double-check to see if the scrape or the bruise requires additional attention. But either way, we're forming the little one's brain towards an emotive bias when encountering that sudden fall. Barrett tells the story of herself being on a date. She was fixed up with a friend of a friend. And they went to dinner, and as they sat and ate dinner, she thought the conversation was pleasant enough, but there wasn't a whole lot of magic between them. But then she noticed that her her breath was getting a little shallow and that her palms were getting a little sweaty and her heart was palpitating. Maybe I should pay attention to this guy. Maybe there is some magic here that I need to attend to. No, later in the evening it was indeed food poisoning. (laughs) Here on the first Sunday of Advent, you and I are toddling off to the Christmas season. Our senses are crammed with experience and our minds full of memories and our brains are busy calculating our emotive response. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart, but wham, what am I going to do this Christmas? Sorry for the reference, now that earworm is in your head for the rest of the service. The disciples were priming their own emotive response, asking Jesus to give them a blueprint about how they were supposed to respond to his coming kingdom. What should we be looking for so that our minds and emotions could be ready? How should we emotively repair for that great day, they are asking Jesus. 
Unfortunately for them and for us, Jesus is deliberately opaque. It's going to be like any other day, he said. You will be clueless. On about the business of any ordinary day, last week, Luke reminded us that Jesus told his disciples not to be distracted by wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters. Things happen, said Jesus, but they are not to distract you and to get you all excited before the end. Today, Matthew recalls that Jesus said it would be like a thief who randomly burgles a home. If you knew what night the thief would come and the exact time, you would be more prepared than all other nights, right? You'd stay up with a baseball bat. You'd stay home. But God's coming kingdom doesn't work that way. You won't have the luxury of advance notice. In the rhythm of the seasons, we begin our weeks of anticipation as we lit the first candle today with a reminder that all of our days should include that sense of anticipation. Our motive brain bank should always include the possibility that God's real realm might be bursting through to usher in the fulfillment of all our hopes and fears. But lacking that interpretive capacity, God's possibility means that we miss the power of every moment. Jesus, like the prophet Isaiah, suggests that our interpretive capacities are much too narrow, too limited to discern our best response to what's going on, a response that should always include the kingdom of God. When, in your work-a-day world, you mine a seam of iron ore, what do you see? What do you see? Do you see swords and spears or do you see plowshares and pruning hooks how we respond to the resources in front of us tell us the kind of mental metaphors that predict our emotions are we worried about anxious catastrophe or life sharing opportunity love or Food poisoning. I'd suggest that the fault is not in our stars, but in our metaphors. Our heads are too cluttered with violent imagery rather than peaceful possibility. It strikes me the very language that we use betrays our tendency to predict bad outcomes. We do things like fight racism, wage war against poverty. Why is my wife battling cancer? I'm not asking the larger ontological question of why did she get cancer. I'm asking why do we use the word battle? As an aside, please, please, at her request, do not call her a cancer warrior. Coming home from chemo these past six months, completely exhausted, a little nauseous, parking close to the bathroom, warrior at that moment is not her metaphor. 
She's not fighting cancer. She's embracing health. She's not defeating an enemy, but nurturing wellness. It's not a war where evil wins or loses. It is a garden in which rich possibility of life is coaxed into being. Likewise, it seems like the only way that we allow ourselves to take something seriously is if we give it militaristic metaphors. We fight racism. The problem with racism is that it is all too fraught with violence. Subjugation is not subdued through battle. It's overwhelmed by hospitality, encouragement, humility. When we claim to seek to change our brains, we all too quickly grab onto images of conflict and hostility and combat. But no time in history has poverty been removed by war. Wealth disparity only wilts in the presence of peace and generosity and compassion. When crisis unfolds, Jesus invites his disciples to carry in their minds another pattern for their emotive response. A pattern that suggests a loving God who is in control of our fallen selves and we need not lash out in panic. If God is with us, who can be against us is not a call to combat. It's an invitation to risk the outrageous possibility that in the inventory of our emotive responses, first and foremost should be the image of peace. And in knowing that peace, we are not to arm ourselves to the teeth, defending our households from unseen enemies. It's a commendation to consider who actually owns this house. And even if an enemy comes like a thief in the night, we can be content that it is well with my soul. That's why when John writes his gospel and speaks of Jesus talking about the coming kingdom, he doesn't use a metaphor of war, but images of gardening, of tending a grapevine. Jesus said, abide in me, and I in you. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in them will bring forth much fruit. Our hearts and our minds are to be so aware of our intimate connection with Christ that our first response need not be a weeping and a wailing at the indignity of a fall, but should be deeply feeling and knowing the embrace of our Savior who scoops us up, holds us near, and reminds us of the destination of our journey. The scratches and scrapes of this world are not the final story, nor should they dictate our response to it. For in the end, writes Isaiah, God alone shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. Amen.
Please join with me and join in our affirmation of faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. Please stand. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, 